I'm not free to vote, but I am free to quote from your declaration of independence. The right to succeed has been guaranteed to me and my descendants. And just fancy you in partnership with me. This could only happen in a democracy. I'm in pursuit of happiness, and the Constitution says I've the right to be. I'm in pursuit of happiness, and I have a heart that says you're the one for me. Positively. You. You could make my life sublime. What's the good of wasting time in the way we do? I'm in pursuit of happiness. That's the very reason I'm in pursuit of you. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radios. This week on Broadway for Sunday, November 7th. 2021. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, Encore Monthly, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi. Peter, I very much appreciate you being here this morning because I know that you gave up running in the New York City Marathon to be here. <laughs> uh, well, I, I really could do 26 miles oh, in that period of time by subway. That's about it. Yeah. <laughs> Rosie Ruiz, the musical. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I remember. And, uh, anybody who doesn't remember that, I guess uh, Wikipedia. Yes. Yeah. So, also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. Hello. And you, um, you're more of a sprinter than a uh, long-distance runner. I will be on uh, New Jersey Transit today. Uh, And I was on yesterday on the same line. Uh, So for whatever that, whatever, who who cares? I mean, I just don't even know why I'm even. (laughs) Now we're talking. That's a tease for George Street Playhouse, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. All right. (laughs) So first up, um, Michael, you got over to see Morning Sun at Manhattan Theater Club. So why don't you tell us about this? Yeah, this is a new play by Simon Stevens, uh, directed by Lila Neugebauer. And I think uh, many people will want to see it, if only for the cast, which consists entirely of Blair Brown, Edie Falco, and Marin Ireland. And it's um, a play about three generations of women uh, basically in New York City from the middle of the 20th century to the present. Um, uh, this uh, is, although me- different in many ways, uh, this play bears a similarity to um, the Lehman trilogy in that you have only three actors playing uh, multiple roles or To be more accurate, two of them play multiple roles, Blair Brown and Marin Ireland. Edie Falco um, only plays one character, 
named Charlie. Uh, her real name is Charlotte. And her mother is played by Blair Brown, uh, her mother, Claudette. And uh, Charlie's daughter, Tessa, is played by Marin Ireland. Uh, but again, Marin and Blair play other characters as well. Um, the confusion starts with the billing. Uh, for some reason, uh, the well, I guess because of the multiple roles, the the characters are built in the playbill as Edie Falco, and it says one. Uh, mm-hmm. Blair Brown says two. Uh, Marin, Marin Ireland is three. Now, first of all, you might think that the oldest woman would be one, and then the, the, her daughter would be two, and then her daughter would be three. But I guess the reason why Edie Falco was chosen to be one is that she is the only one who plays one character, and I, I suppose uh, mm-hmm. she's the central character, although it, I felt it was pretty, uh, pretty equally uh, attention was given to all three characters. Wasn't order of appearance or alphabetical? Well, it, it says cast in alphabetical order, and then it says two, Blair Brown, <laughs> one, Edie Falco, three, Marin Ireland. Uh, so even that's not, <laughs> even that's not, it's very, very confusing. And and I have to say, um, I had my problems with the Lehman trilogy, but one thing I will say is that all of the character shifting in that, to me, was very, very clear. Uh, when the various actors were shifting from playing one character to, an, uh, to another. Here, not so much. Sometimes, uh, for example, Blair Brown will be speaking as Claudette, you know, or, or um, uh, well, uh, Blair Brown will be speaking as Claudette, and then somebody will suddenly say uh, to her, so, Bill, what did you do yesterday? And, you know, suddenly she's supposed to be one of the, uh, you know, a man in her life uh, or I mean, that's just an example, not, not necessarily from the play. And so suddenly you hear someone being called Bill or, or Joe or whatever, and and you understand uh, that they're suddenly speaking as somebody else, but they don't change their their speech or their accent or anything to or even their body language to indicate another character. So that was very, very confusing to me. And I d- didn't understand why the playwright did that. Um, I wonder I wonder if some of these plays have been rewritten for smaller casts so they could be done during the pandemic. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sometimes it always seems like that's the case and, and they're very confusing for that reason. Um, another interesting thing about this play is that uh, Simon Stevens is British. And uh, in fact, he's a professor of playwriting at Manchester Metropolitan University, as in Manchester, England, England. Uh, so, uh, but this is very much about New York City, uh, these, these women's lives in New York City during that period I mentioned. And there's lots of talk of, um, uh, well, first of all, they start out in a, a, a rent-controlled apartment in Greenwich Village, I believe they say, far west 11th Street. Um, the uh, Some of the uh, you know, lots of landmarks are mentioned, including the White Horse Tavern, which, as mm-hmm. far as I know, is still there. Last mm-hmm. time I looked, mm-hmm. um, and but then they also talk about the East Side, and there's mention of um, there's a whole section of discussion of of all people, Jane Jacobs and Robert Moses, who uh, it's so funny. I had a friend, a late friend, who was very into that whole story mm-hmm. of how mm-hmm. Jane Jacobs valiantly prevented. Robert Moses from, uh, you know, doing even worse things uh, to 
kind of destroy life in the city. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, uh, so I, I, you know, I hope on some level, Miss Jacobs somewhere knows uh, that she is well remembered for that. And and I've seen her portrayed in several different plays. So I, I just think that's so interesting. Uh, but anyway, S- Simon Stevens is British. So uh, it's interesting to me that he uh, wrote this very, very New York story. And I, I, I don't know the background on that. Um, uh, the acting is as expected beyond criticism, uh, all three women. And, and that's the reason to see the play. But I found it very confusing. And also, uh, it's about very ordinary lives. There's nothing extraordinary about these people. And that's fine. But it didn't seem uh, especially interesting, to be honest, uh, from as far as the narrative itself. Um, So I would say see it for the acting uh, and don't expect any kind of a great play. Hmm. So, um, uh, Pulling these three incredible talents together mm. on the stage like this, mm-hmm. uh, especially uh, Edie Falco, who's got such a, a great name recognition, is this? Do you feel like this is uh, this would have been produced without these three women if it were just three uh, A, B, and C? Well, maybe in a smaller, you know, venue. Uh, but oh, I, I should also mention, and this might be a semi-spoiler uh, if people want to skip ahead, uh, but I don't think it really is. Uh, one interesting thing is that the play deals with cancer, and Edie Falco herself um, is a cancer survivor. Mm-hmm. So there's that mm-hmm. other whole level mm-hmm. of that there. Hmm. Uh, Michael, uh, were you a fan of The Sopranos when it was on HBO? I only saw the last 10 minutes of the last episode. <laughs> literally, literally. <laughs> so just for the uh, pop culture reference, just so that... Well, you, just because, you know, you everyone can, was yeah, yeah. talking about it. You could not see it. All right. Don't stop believing. <laughs> All right. Uh, so Morning Sun is at Manhattan Theater Clubs in City Center Stage 1. They probably leave stage one first uh, through December 19th. Uh, and I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Peter, you got down to New York Theater Workshop to see Christina Wong's Sweatshop Overlords. So tell us about this. Well, um, it's a one-person show, and the one person is Christina Wong. That's actually her name, because this is a very autobiographical show. And it it deals with the fact that here was a woman, when she heard that there was a pandemic, um, said, well, if I have to stay inside, I'm going to do something about it. And so she began sewing masks, figuring that people are going to need masks. Um, granted, there are so many people who feel they don't need masks, but that's another story. But anyway, so um, she did what she could. I mean, she actually took old bras and uh, made masks out of them. She took bed sheets, which uh, was more logical, I guess. But still, um, she just kept on sewing and she decided that she was going to get other people to do it. And um, soon she had a squad of people um, and uh, all working from home. Hundreds, hundreds of volunteers um, got her mother involved, got kids involved and um, figured that uh, she was going to do what she can. She wasn't going to sit still. And, um, and, And the thing is that you do come out of there saying, wow, you know, I've been so, um, neglectful in not doing more that I can. Um, Why have I not um, responded in the way that she did? 
and you do come out feeling guilty. And I guess that's not something that a lot of people want to face. But nevertheless, it does make you reconsider your own values and um, think about yourself in a very different way. Not a flattering way, I have to admit, but it's never didactic. It's, she's simply telling her story. There's never any implication of why weren't you doing this? Um, why aren't you as good as I am? Why aren't you as noble as I am? There's nothing like that at all. And Christina Wong is a very delightful person to spend an hour and a half with. Delightful. Um, terrifically appealing and um, <clears throat> has a nice, nice way of dealing with the audience. Uh, she really um, takes the bull by the horns and um, dives into it with such spirit and such class um, that you're, you're mesmerized. So under those circumstances, that's what happens, too. It's not just a guilt trip. That's not what she wants from you. That comes um, by itself. But but. Uh, her appeal is so wonderful that you uh, are looking forward to whatever she does next, where um, it might be um, entertaining without any um, un underlying uh, message of the fact that um, I did this and you didn't. So um, so it's really quite an experience down there at New York Theater Workshop, which, by the way, I don't I don't know if this is um, a, a permanent thing. But the seating is uh, very different now, and it seems to me from the way that they've done it that it's permanent, and I could be wrong about that. We'll see. But there are now a riser, a riser in the center and risers on the side that have stadium seating, which we all prefer because you know, we don't get heads in our ways. Um, so uh, I hope it's I hope uh, indeed that it's um, for the future, because um, in the past, it was a perfectly decent uh, situation with the seating and there was a semi stadium seating feel to it. But it's it's very different now. And um, I hope it's permanent. I wonder, Peter, that's interesting because wasn't um, wasn't the configuration completely different for Othello? Oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I you know, we had uh, uh, Hades Town down there that Absolutely. had those. Absolutely, wood. You know, it yeah. seems like they rebuild this, rebuild the the space I, as according to whatever they need. Yes, I agree with that. However, this looks so permanent to oh, me. Gotcha, gotcha. Mm -hmm. That's the only difference. If it didn't look permanent, I wouldn't say that because yes, of course, I've had those experiences, um, and I had a miserable time at Hades Town because um, it was so rickety and um, this, uh, everything was on top of each other. <laughs> but but um, this to me looks as if it's permanent. Now, will time will tell. And the Othello thing was just like plywood. Yeah, you yeah. Know, so uh, was Hades Town. Yeah, and and, uh, and then there was the famous box show. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. <laughs> Where there were right. no seats. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. So that is uh, Christina Wong, Sweatshop Overlord at New York Theater Workshop, uh, playing through November twenty first. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, last week, Peter talked about Carolina Change, and this week, uh, Michael and I have had a chance to see it. So, Michael, why don't you tell us what you thought about Carolina? Oh or Change? boy, I just loved it. I, you know, I loved it the first time and I think I loved it even more this time. Here's an interesting fact. Uh, tell me if you share this. Several people, uh, including myself, who saw this production said we did not remember that it was so much through sung. Huh. Hmm. Um, there's very little dialogue in it. Um, I'm sure they didn't add music. I guess I just didn't remember. Um, mm, it so seemed the same to me. 
Oh, okay. All right. Well, I, I, I it doesn't I, make I, me right, but that's what it seems. No, no, no. But I wouldn't mention it if it, if I was the only one. But uh-huh. several other friends said, "Gosh, you know, it was almost through song." Mm-hmm. And uh, I have the album, <laughs> which I haven't <laughs> listened to in years, but I'm certainly going to go back to it. Uh, I didn't check. Has this new one been re-recorded in London? I haven't heard that. Yeah. Well, I hope it is because Sharon D. Clark in the title role, uh, first of all is everything you've heard. Absolutely brilliant. Um, and I would say, uh, um, you know, Tanya Pinkett's was amazing in the, in the, in the role in the, the first production, but um, there was that issue where she would lose control sometimes in the, in the most emotional moments, uh, for example, Lot's wife, and she would sometimes uh, start singing off pitch and, and just really lose control uh you know, a little more than, than, than one, <laughs> than one would like. Um, and I think that's even the case on the, was it the Tony awards performance? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, th- that is not an issue here. No loss of control, but yet still uh, with every ounce of power that you would want from the role. And the whole, the whole cast was just superb, brilliantly directed by Michael Longhurst, very simple, but effective production. Um I I just I don't I don't know what to say. I, I loved it so much. I, I think it, it's a it's a beautiful piece to begin with. It's so so beautifully written by Tony Kushner and Janine Tesori. I think it's her best work by far, in my opinion. Um, and everyone in it: uh, Casey Levy as Rose, Stuart Zagnet as Grandpa Gelman, Joy Hermelin as Grandma Gelman. Um, so nice to see Chip Zion <laughs> back mm-hmm. on stage as, as Mr. <laughs> Stopnik and the young people. Um, uh, some of them are, uh, are double cast. I saw um, Jackie uh, Richard Alexander Phillips as Jackie Thibodeau and uh, Jaden Theophile as Joe Thibodeau and Jaden Miles Waldman as Noah Gelman. They were all wonderful young, young actors. Uh, I have to mention Emmy, uh, the role of Emmy. Where is it? I can't find it. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, Samantha, Samantha Williams. I have to mention Samantha Williams as Emmy Thibodeau also. That's another one of the major, major roles in it. Uh, and everyone was fantastic. John Cariani and in a thankless role, mm-hmm. uh, but really doing an excellent job of playing the clarinet. <laughs> Uh, it's really wonderful. <laughs> I was uh, thinking about uh, our discussion about Lackawanna Blues and, oh, you know, the big surprise about how great their harmonica playing was. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I had to say about John Cariani, the, the clarinet, I was like, he is first class clarinet player. I mean, he yes. was really playing that, right? Oh, yeah. He, yeah, that's what I thought. I mean, really, really amazing. I, I wonder. I and wonder by the if, way, is it mentioned, uh, is it ever actually mentioned in. Um, in the play that that uh that character is a professional musician and is that why yeah. he's yeah mm-hmm. uh, but i mean do they actually say that or do we just assume no no she says uh she says it in the beginning of uh, the top of the show i uh, i'm 99% sure and they sent at least they sent me a script so i can oh. i can check that no i mean I, i'm sure you're right i just i i guess i just missed it um I didn't see it when it was uh, originally on Broadway. I, oh, I, don't, wow. I don't think I saw it. 
Uh, I don't recall <clears throat> seeing it, uh, it, which is surprising to me because certainly I should have seen it at at the time. That it was not that long ago that it was before when I was seeing Broadway shows. Um, uh, so uh, the two of you, tell me how it compared to. Did they? Uh, uh, how did they? Uh, uh, change the the direction of this this thing and, and and present it was it presented similarly or very differently or i think so i think it was very similar yeah no um, ra- no radical difference that i could no. say maybe this one was a little simpler on this two level this two level set i don't recall a second split. level i don't that doesn't mean it wasn't there but i don't recall a second level i i sort of do and oh, the yeah? way okay and the yeah. way in which the set split up the middle and then the metaphor of the set coming back together at the end, I thought was really interesting. I don't think that happened. And I remember the entrance of the bus uh, mm. was yeah. tremendously effective in this production because of what you just said, played by, uh, by the way, by Kevin McAllister, Kevin S. McAllister, just just be brilliant as the bus. Um, uh, I, I don't remember that happening in the original production. I remember Chuck Cooper as the bus mm-hmm. uh, going like stage right to stage left or something like that. And the whole uh, the, the washing machine was adorable. Yeah, I, I love the washing machine and the, and the three radios. And I think I, they had a lot more choreography and movement in this production. Mm-hmm. I don't remember all that dancing. Yeah, the uh, I was wondering if the personification of the objects were uh, were done similarly in the in the original production. But uh, uh, I also wanted to mention on I, I saw this on Thursday evening uh, and during uh, this this very intense scene between Caroline and Noah about uh, the twenty dollars. Somebody in the audience screamed, "This show is anti-Semitic." Yeah, I and, did read oh, about that. Wow. I did wow. read about that. Yeah, and I was like, I was, I, 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 I mean, everybody, they didn't miss a beat on stage, but every, uh, I felt like the audience took a collective gasp. Mm. That first of all, what is this? I, <laughs> why, mm. why does this person feel the need to scream out in the middle of a show during such an intense scene? Mm. And second of all. Did they not? Were they not listening? Did they not understand what was happening there? <laughs> I guess not. That was I uh, guess and, not. And then the ushers or nobody at Studio Fifty Four did anything. Oh. I, I was like, it was it was such a such a unfortunate event to happen in the middle of of, of such a well regarded show, and so I just. Where was this? By the way, was this person in the orchestra? The mezzanine? yeah. Orchestra. It seemed yeah. like orchestra house uh, house right. We mm. were orchestra in the center, mm-hmm. uh, pretty close up front, and mm. it seemed to me to my right. Uh, At what point in the show did you say it happened? Oh, during what, when Caroline and Noah had the confrontation about the twenty dollars. Mm-hmm. So, tor- oh, so towards the very end. Mm-hmm. Uh, when well, no. you know Maybe when the end. yeah the when end, yeah. yeah when. Uh, when Noah was saying that I'm going to build a bomb that's going to kill everybody, or oh, and when uh, she says the line about what happens to yeah, Jews, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and wow, what a, uh, uh, what a strange, unfortunate thing to happen during during a show, especially a show that's been around for so many years that mm-hmm. uh, you would you would think that if it were uh, 
if it were really anti-Semitic, it would not be presented in this day and time. And the only thing I could say in defense of the ushers is maybe they felt it would just have created more of a disturbance uh, if they mm. had, you know, and they were just hoping that it wouldn't happen again. And if it did, maybe maybe then they would have stepped in. But it's, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't in a, in a case like that. I, uh, I also adored Chip Zion, but I, I felt like I was, I was transitioning into falsettos. It was so similar to Mendel, and <laughs> it is a, quite a similar character, isn't it? Yeah, it was like you know, if Mendel went down uh, to Georgia uh, on a break <laughs> to for Thanksgiving, uh, you know, <laughs> so uh, I half expected Noah to have a baseball game. Uh, it, and you know, for those of us who don't read programs, uh, it was such a surprise to see uh, suddenly there's Chip Zine on stage, you know. So. Uh, um, of whom I've been a fan for 43 years when I first saw him in In Trousers, William Finn's mm-hmm. debut show, where he was phenomenal. By the way, Mary Tester and Alison Frazier were in it too. I mean, quite a cast. Okay. Um, all newbies and still around. <laughs> uh, Kevin S. McAllister, I should say, also plays the dryer. Uh, he uh-huh. really has a phenomenal voice. One of those just really rich, uh, deep, beautiful voice. He's not like a typical Broadway tenor by any mm. uh, stretch. He's much more of a, a baritone. I mean, I'm sure he has the high notes too, but his voice is so rich and, and warm and powerful. He's really something. Linda Armstrong in Harlem News calls him the sexiest dryer you'll ever see. Who does? Linda Armstrong. Do you know her from Harlem News? Oh. Delightful writer. <laughs> <laughs> so that's Carolina Changeover at Studio 54. It's playing through January 9th, 2022. So get over there if you can. Today's episode of This Week on Broadway is being brought to you by Today Ticks. I've gotten to see so many more shows than I normally would because of how quick and easy Today Ticks makes getting tickets. They have amazing prices for some of the best theater I've ever seen. Today Ticks is your one-stop shop for theater tickets with the best value on tickets to Broadway and beyond. Just download the app or visit todayticks.com to find a show that you want to see. Getting tickets is easier than ever. With the Today Ticks app, you can check out in 30 seconds and pick up your tickets with ease. I was hesitant to use Today Ticks because I was wondering, is this just another ticket reseller that's going to kill us with high ticket prices? But Today Ticks is not like that. Today Ticks has affordable Broadway shows for under $50. In today's episode, we talk about Dana H., we talk about Is This a Room, we talk about Caroline or Change, we talk about Lackawanna Blues. Let me tell you about those shows on Today Ticks this week. Dana H. is $39, Is This a Room is $39, Caroline or Change is $20, Lackawanna Blues is $30. This is Broadway, folks. You could see these outstanding shows for just a mere fraction of their price. And check out all the others on the Today Ticks app or website. Book your tickets months in advance or even day of if you're feeling spontaneous. Today Ticks gives you access to exclusive pre-sales, limited time offers, digital lottery programs to sold-out shows, and day of discounted tickets. Today Ticks isn't just for Broadway and London's West End. You could also find tickets in cities across the country and around the world, including Chicago, L.A., D.C., San Francisco, Sydney, and more. See the shows you've always wanted to see or discover something that you'll love just as much with Today Ticks. Go to todayticks.com slash broadwayradio and use the promo code broadwayradio to get $10 off your first Today Ticks purchase. That's promo code broadwayradio at todaytix.com slash broadwayradio for $10 off your first ticket purchase. Remember, todayticks.com slash broadwayradio. 
I'd like to thank Today Ticks for sponsoring Broadway Radio. Uh, Peter, you did a return uh, viewing of Jagged Little Pill over the, at the Broadhurst. Uh, mm-hmm. So tell us, uh, how's the show shaping up these days? It's in terrific shape. Um, but, you know, I really do believe this is one of the best books in recent years. And really, Diablo Cody did a phenomenal job. It was so smart to start with um, <clears throat> MJ Healy, the uh, mother, Mary Jane, showing us her Christmas letter that she's sending out about how everything is so great <laughs> with the family. And, you know, we, we get these letters every year, of course, from various people. And just like Rent, this show goes from one Christmas to another. And the Christmas letter at the end of the show is a very different one and a very honest one uh, because a lot is going on here. Now, we have a lot of family musicals, God knows, in this era, um, which usually translate to shows you can take the whole family to. This is a different family musical because here's a family that's pretty miserable. Uh, Father's overworked. Mother's a drug addict who does get our sympathy because she endured a serious car accident that's left her with great pain. Of course, we're never told if she was at fault with the accident um, or if she was inebriated. And we, we can at least have the right to infer that she may have been at fault. Um, again, benefit of the doubt, fine. No question. But it's, it's impossible not to think about that accident, which she never tells us the details. Uh, the son is headed for Harvard, but uh, he suspects his parents would have stopped loving him as much had he not been accepted. Jackie is the adopted daughter, and she suspects that her parents chose her so that everybody in this Tony Connecticut town would say, Oh, weren't the Healy's marvelous to adopt a black girl? So um, we really get the impression that living in the suburbs can mean a suburban life, uh, that uh, there are a lot of uh, pitfalls living uh, in uh, that part of the world. So uh, many. this show is so amazingly directed by Diane Paulus. Um, and I mean, she makes the scenery dance, the watching that scenery move and come into a, a dozens, maybe even a hundred different configurations is, is flabbergasting. How she ever could have managed it is, 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 is astonishing. I don't know if, uh, you know, um, people always use the expression, what a traffic cop, you know, and <clears throat> well, I don't know if there's a traffic cop of the year award, but um, <laughs> if there were, she'd get it for this and the choreography. Um, by uh, Sidney Larby Chukawki. Um, very herky-jerky, and it must have been so hard to learn. I mean, some of it looks like it's American Sign Language, but um, it's, it's, uh, it's very effective and so right. So, um, of course, um, Alanis Morissette and Glenn Ballard wrote the songs, and I think where, where the songs are very effective are in showing the slight differences between um, the generations in terms of the music. There's a bit of a, a crossover, but <clears throat> the parents' music is a little Still um, more in the style of people who were born um, in uh, the 80s. And um, while the, the kids have a little different um, sound to them, too. So but it's the book that really is an achievement. I am so glad that um, that Diablo Cody won, a to- Cody won a Tony. And frankly, I think they should have won Best Musical. Wow. I okay. do. What beat it? Moulin Rouge. Oh, uh, yeah. Didn't it? 
didn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would agree with that. <laughs> well, yeah, you mean such a strange year. So oh, yeah. For, yeah, for Tony, yeah, for right. Tony Ward's thing, yeah. you know. <laughs> That's why we're not even sure. We're not even paying that close attention. So sure. exactly. So I, you know, uh, does anybody recall exactly uh, when Jagged? originally opened was it yes i did check because i'm doing this new book uh and i'm dealing with decades and while i was watching i said oh i think this opened right at the end of 2019 because i'm stopping at 2020 mm-hmm. and um and i looked in december 5th oh great okay i can put it in it's one of the best musicals <laughs> of that decade so um so i'm very happy about that but uh that's when it opened all right so uh jagged little pill now and forever at the broadcast <laughs> <laughs> so, Michael, um, yes. you headed on, uh, as we teased before, on Jersey Transit, I'd imagine, down to New Brunswick, New Jersey, to the George Street Playhouse to see Ken Ludwig's Dear Jack, Dear Louise. So tell us about this. And that is the title of it. Uh, more on that in a moment. <laughs> uh, full disclosure, the main reason I went uh, was because a friend of mine has one of the two uh, roles. Uh, Bill Army plays Jack Ludwig. Um, who is Ken Ludwig's father. Uh, and uh, Bill has many credits. He was in the band's visit. Uh, he was in act one. Uh, he was in relatively speaking. Um, so I really went mainly for him. Uh, but then I found out that the other role, uh, uh, Louise Rabiner, as it's pronounced in the show. So I guess that's the correct pronunciation uh, play is played by Amelia Pedlo. Uh, who I very much enjoyed in uh, a couple of shows at the Red Bull, uh, the Metro Maniacs and Tis Pity, She's a Whore. Uh, she was also in Pride and Prejudice, uh, the, the Kate Hamill one, and several other, uh, oh, uh, The Liar and the Heir Apparent at Classic Stage Company. So uh, that made me want to see it even more. And she plays, uh, as I said, Louise Rubiner, who uh, turned out to be uh, Ken Ludwig's mother, because this is the story of uh, the courtship of his mother and father uh, through letters while his father was in was serving in World War II as a as an army doctor. Um, and uh, I don't I, I, I've tried to find out uh, and wasn't immediately able to how much, if any, of the text is actually from their letters. Uh, I have not been able to find that out yet. So if anyone knows, uh, please feel free to pass that on. Uh, I, I will continue to, to research that little thing. But um, either way, it was turned out to be very moving and uh and beautifully act as, as I, as I expected. Um, but really I would say it's the best thing that, that Ken Ludwig has written uh, very different from his two most famous uh, plays, lend me a tenor and moon over Buffalo. Um, I mean, those are farces and this is not that at all. Um, signs were not good as I, as I got to the, uh, to the theater because literally it says George street Playhouse presents Ken Ludwig's dear Jack, dear Louise by Ken Ludwig. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know, you know, I, 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 I don't see any reason to put the author's name as part of the title when it's a, a new play by, uh, by a, well, I mean, he's not unknown, but, but it's, 
it's one thing to say Rodgers and Hammerstein's Oklahoma, <laughs> which I don't agree with either. But at least the <laughs> argument there is that, um, you know, they're 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 not current and they're long dead. And maybe young people don't know who they were. Of course, if young people don't know who they were, then they don't care. Right. Apparently. So, so, so what's the point? of Anyway, I, I, I don't like that trend at all, but I, I think it's especially egregious uh, when it's a new play like this is every new play going to have that. Well, I do remember uh, when Neil Simon's Gingerbread Lady was made into a film called Only When I Laugh. Um, I was invited to a screening and there was a long <laughs> lecture at the beginning saying, when you write about this, it must be Neil Simon's Only When I Laugh. That is the official title. <laughs> Neil Simon's Only When I Laugh. And you may recall that it was Edward Albee's The Play About the Baby. So uh, there was that one, too. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's kind of crummy. Um, and um we really don't need to aggrandize playwrights to that degree. Um, we can give them the good reviews if we like it, but um, <laughs> um, a part of the official title, capital O, capital T, nah, not for me either. I agree with you, Michael. <laughs> yeah, and I think actually on, on that note, I think some of uh, Neil Simon's final plays were billed as Neil Simon's whatever. Isn't that uh -huh. true? I don't yeah. remember that, but I certainly remember the lecture and only when I laugh. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, you really, I mean, do we do we have, you know, um, you know, we didn't have Jeremy O. Harris's slave play, mm -hmm. we you know, know yet. And, and that's certainly someone who uh, is, is not shy. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> so right. I, you know, anyway, I well, I thought that was that was something that really turned me off before the show even started. And also, I'm not a big fan of the director, David Saint. So uh, I didn't know what to expect, but I really really enjoyed it. I really loved it. There were some moments in it where I thought um, uh, that the the playwright was reaching for humor when it was unnecessary. Uh, and I also thought there were some moments where the director maybe encouraged the cast to uh, overplay a little bit, which was also unnecessary. This was in the, um, the smaller of the two theaters. Oh. Yes, uh, which is, you know, is perfectly appropriate because it is only two characters and it's not a musical um, at at the George Street, the, their their beautiful new facility. So it was in the Arthur Lawrence Theater, which is the smaller of the two. I don't, don't remember the name of the other one at, at the moment. Um, but it, yeah, it really is about the correspondence of the uh of these two during the war. It's, it's an epistolary play uh, word. You don't hear that much anymore. I guess. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's really, really well, well done and beautifully acted. Um, there were two surprising anachronisms in it. And I'm very, very surprised at the playwright. Uh, we, it, we're told that it starts, the correspondence starts on June 1st, 1942. Uh, there's a big, projection on the back wall that tells us that and so uh, so these two they meet and they start talking and you know and and you they're obviously forming a bond and then after a few scenes um louise uh, is an actress and she talks about how she went to see oklahoma um, <laughs> on broadway and how um celeste holmes performance of uh, of uh, uh, i can't say no really yeah. knocked her out so uh -huh. at first i thought all right well maybe you know maybe now we're supposed to have moved forward enough in the story that it's past march 
uh, of 43, which is when Oklahoma opened, mm-hmm. um, although it didn't seem to be. But I, I gave them the benefit of the doubt. And then sure enough, a, another projection comes up on the back wall after that scene saying December 1942. Mm. So mm. really, gosh, yeah. Ken, <laughs> you don't know when Oklahoma <laughs> opened. And even if you don't, you can look it up. Um, and then uh, the uh, Louise starts talking about how she really uh, she thinks that maybe Jack might get a leave to come to New York. And he says, maybe we should go, could go see a play. And she says, oh, well, the one I really want to see is Arsenic and Old Lace. Now, that's mm-hmm. fine because that opened in 1941, I think. But she says, um, and in the movie, Cary Grant plays the movie. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and the movie was until 1944. So. I, very, very surprising uh, that he did that. I, I, I guess he can go back and fix it if he cares. Well, they'll probably do a moon over George Street. <laughs> so moon over Dock Street. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that's uh, Ken Ludwig's uh, "Dear Jack, Dear Louise" at George Street Playhouse. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. And don't let the those anachronisms keep you from seeing it, because really, overall, it, it was really beautiful, very moving at the end. Uh, they, they use some period music in the show, you know, just recordings of period music. And the final song is I'll be seeing you. And mm-hmm. it really just, I, mm. I really was kind of teary eyed at that point. <laughs> I have to go back and listen to our interview with uh, Ken, because I think he talked about this. I think so. Yes. I think, I think so. So, so yeah. it'd be interesting to comparison contrast there. Maybe he talks there about how much of it, if any, is based on the actual text of their letters. Oh, he did. I, I sort of remember that. I just can't remember if it was recorded or not because uh, uh, oh, okay. I, I wasn't sure if that was included in our interview. But I'm pretty sure it's 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 part of the text. Uh, yeah. At least it was when we talked to him. So, uh, Peter, you got to uh, Repertorio Español to see uh, Filomena. Uh, so tell us about this. I love Philomena. I think it's really a great play. Um, I, I, this was the third time I've seen it. I saw it on Broadway uh, way back when, and I saw a terrific revival with Maria Tucci in the lead role uh, about 20-odd years ago. And uh, so I was really looking forward to this. Um, you may know this property under its movie title. It was made into a film, and it was called Marriage Italian Style. <laughs> now, mm-hmm. the reason it was called that is because the year before, in 1963, there was a big unexpected Italian hit called Divorce Italian Style. (laughs) This has nothing to do with Philomena, but the point is they figured, well, if people liked Divorce Italian Style, maybe they'll like Marriage Italian Style, so let's call it that, and we will see what we can uh, do for business. But um, it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful movie, and I promised my girlfriend, I said, you are going to laugh and you are going to cry at this um, uh, uh, play. Uh, She did neither because the director made such a tremendous mistake at the beginning of the show that, um, or, or there's somebody who wasn't on the ball technically. What do I, what am I talking about? Okay. One of the points of the play is the fact that Philomena has been a prostitute and uh, she had a regular customer who took her out of that. And uh, certainly made her a maid. Um, But he really loves her, but he can't really commit to her because, indeed, she was a prostitute and she is um, an employee. And uh, Don Domingo uh, uh, just feels very differently about it. So 
she has been working for him for 25 years. She has done all the dirty work. And um, as a result, you know, she really feels entitled to something. And she knows that it's her past that is keeping uh, her from being uh, his wife. So anyway, the whole point of it, the first scene is that um, she's deathly ill now, deathly ill. And her deathbed wish is that he marry her. And he feels bad. And since she's going to be going at any minute, he <laughs> does marry her, at which point she jumps out of bed triumphantly and says, now we're married. Um, she's not sick at all. <clears throat> all right. At Repertorial Espanol, this is all played behind a scrim. And much of it is done without dialogue. <clears throat> and you cannot understand what is going on. And it is so important to understand that that is what's going on, that it is a ruse. And <clears throat> why this obfuscation is happening with a scrim is beyond me. And it's really too bad because it gets everything off on the wrong foot. And you know that famous expression about musicals, you got to grab them in the first 10 minutes. You could do anything in the first 10 minutes if you make it very clear what you're doing. Well, it applies to plays too. And here the play suffers tremendously because of this directorial decision i mean you, you, i was reminded of death trap where um sydney brule the the faded playwright uh, reads the great script by the new playwright and says not even a gifted director could destroy it and you know there's a comment on these people who have to bring it into a new decade or whatever it is and here we have a gifted director who did um, destroy it so and it's too bad <clears throat> excuse me because zulima claris playing philomena terrific and sandra Dwan playing Domingo. Terrific. And um, but if you don't understand what's going on, my, you're going to have a problem. And you may not understand because you may not understand how to work your little translation um, device that uh, is uh, on your seat, except it isn't on your seat. What's on uh, what's on the seat in front of you is um, a Velcroed piece of something where you connect your machine. But I can't say that when you go in that they say, would you like a machine? Um, again, my girlfriend had to um, zip off and uh, say, what's going on here? And we did get our machines. So we missed that, too, in the first scene. And so uh, it's really too bad because I love Repertorio Espanol. I love the little playhouse. I love what they do usually. But this is really a terrible misstep. And I really hope that scrim comes down immediately. Are you saying, Peter, that you felt that it actually muffled the sound to the point that, that you had trouble understanding? Well, I don't understand Spanish. I would have read it, but I didn't have the machine at that point in time. But more to the point, yes, everything is muffled um, because of that scrim. But mm -hmm. you can't even you, you cannot even see particularly well. I mean, we were they didn't light behind the scrim. Yeah, of course, but but nevertheless, it just wasn't as clear as it could be. Gotcha. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah, I mean, it was like watching Lucy and Mame. I mean, you know, it was uh, worse. You know, so um, oh. and and when it's worse than <laughs> Lucy and Mame, I mean, really, I mean, come on. So anyway, so uh, so anyway, take down the scrim. You know, Reagan said, "Take down that wall, Mr. Gorbachev. Take down that scrim, <laughs> repertorio Espanol, right now, right now." Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right, so that's uh, Repertorio Español's uh, Filomeno. Um, it's going through December 10th uh, over on the east side in the 20s, so check that out. Um, have either one of you heard from Book of Mormon? Or are they, are no. you going to go back? I'll go back if they ask. Sure. 
I have not heard. I understand that there's been uh, considerable changes to the script, so I wonder yes, if they're going to bring us that, yeah. bring us back. Mm-hmm. So, all right. So uh, that wraps it up for this morning. Before we get on to trivia and the musical moment, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. You can hear us on Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to find our podcast, you'll find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do you have an answer for last week's trivia? The question was, what famous TV series of this century was later parodied as a stage musical and has the same name as a play that closed in previews? despite being directed by one of the most famous names in Broadway history. Hmm. Well, the series is The Office, which ran from 2005-2013 on TV and was parodied at a musical at the Theater Center in 2018. But back in 1966, Maria Irene Fornes wrote a play called The Office that started previews at the theater now known as The Sondheim. The play never opened despite being directed by Jerome Robbins. Michelle Witte was the first this time. Yes, Michelle, not Paul, her husband. (laughs) He didn't do a damn thing. (laughs) But Michelle answered a full 13 minutes before Tony Janicki. Then came Josh Israel, Brigadude, Ingrid Gammerman, Mike Meany, Jack Leshner, Jay Aubrey Jones, and Greg Christensen. This week's question. A song in a Tony-winning score from the 60s, but not a Tony-winning musical, contains two words in a row, that many decades later would become the name of a Ben and Jerry's ice cream flavor. What are the words? All right. If you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. Uh, Peter, as as you know, that uh, Paul Witte is one of our uh, Patreon sponsors for mm-hmm. uh, for Broadway Radio and gets to listen to us live on Sunday mornings as we record. And he just wrote that I love you too, Peter. <laughs> so, <laughs> Paul, in real time, can you answer the question? Beat your wife to it. <laughs> I see nothing in the chat box. I wonder what that means. So, okay. <laughs> okay. All right, Michael, what do we have in this week's musical moment? Well, our subject uh, for the musical moments uh, this week is recycled songs. Uh, but we're not talking about trunk songs. Uh, there are many famous examples of that. Uh Two from the Rodgers and Hammerstein canon are that uh, uh, this is a real nice clam bake from Carousel was originally written as this was a real nice hayride for Oklahoma. Mm. And uh, also uh, getting to know you Mm. from the King and I was originally a song called Suddenly Lucky Mm -hmm. uh, written for Cable to sing in South Pacific. And I believe it went suddenly lucky, suddenly Mm -hmm. I'm feeling lucky. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, But no, we're talking about uh, in this case, we're talking about um, songs that were actually used (laughs) in, in, shows uh and recorded uh in those shows and then repurposed for use in in other shows um and uh we the opening and closing musical moment this week are uh we're using i'm in pursuit of happiness which is a song that julie stein and leo robin wrote for a tv musical called ruggles of red gap in 1957 
And it starred Michael Redgrave, Jane Powell, and Peter Lawford, among other people. Those are the three that you'll hear in in our musical excerpt at, to open and close the show. Uh, and, uh, you know, so this was a show that was on national TV in 1957. It, it did get a soundtrack or album mm-hmm. or a recording, mm-hmm. yes, I believe, yes. on the Verve label, That's which right. is not yeah. an unknown, you know. And somehow, <laughs> um, two years later, Julie Stein brought the melody to Stephen Sondheim when they were writing Gypsy and didn't mention <laughs> that it had been used in this national TV show and had been recorded. And somehow you might think, gosh, um, is it possible that Sondheim wouldn't have known that? But, you know, remember, we're talking 1957. So I think he was probably busy with West Side Story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe he wasn't watching a lot of TV. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> as he tells the story, he had absolutely no idea that it was in, that this song was in that show and recorded. And he was very angry when he found out. But by that point, you know, it was all done. Uh, so I think that's a fascinating story. And you can hear... Um, in our podcast today, uh, how close, how very, 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 very close the melody is to you'll never, you'll never get away from me. Uh, but then I thought, well, you know, if we're going to do that, we can include a couple of other things in the show notes, a couple of other examples. Um, and they are, um, a song called show tune, Mm-hmm. From the Broadway show Parade, the, the review with music and lyrics by Jerry Herman, which then became It's Today from MAME. Now, in this case, it's only the it's the main part of the, the melody. It's mm-hmm. not the whole thing. But you can hear uh, there again, if you if you click the link in our show notes, uh, the YouTube link, you can hear how similar that are. And, and there's another one um, to me that's that's one of the most interesting examples of all uh in 1969 um uh there was a record released uh, a single called try it and see uh w- sung by rita pavone p-a-v-o-n-e uh with music by andrew lloyd weber and lyrics by tim rice and it is note for note king herod's song Mm-hmm. from uh <clears throat> from Jesus Christ superstar. Uh so in that case uh obviously both the lyricist and the <laughs> composer knew uh that they were recycling it but uh one might have thought that they would be hesitant to do that but they weren't just as Jerry Herman wasn't for Mame and uh Julie Stein was not for gypsy uh i i just think it's fascinating i don't know if uh if y'all have other examples oh, like that <laughs> yeah. but uh, but yes but uh, but i uh, but it is it especially fascinates me when the song was actually in a show and recorded before mm-hmm. it was recycled that's mm-hmm. i don't think there were that many of those because that's kind of not. My favorite is um, a song for um, low-life type people in I and Albert, a musical oh. about Queen Victoria that yeah. Strauss and Adams wrote. And it became the Elvis song um, in Bring Back Birdie. Oh. Um, <laughs> so uh, the first time we hear Elvis sing, of course, the arrangement is very different, but nevertheless, it's the same melody. Um, yeah, Charles Strauss did it a lot, actually, a lot. Waste not, want not. Mm. Um, and in Dance a Little Closer, um, there's a song that um, I don't know, which was originally an applause as the opening number. Um, 
So, uh, and the thing is, what you really feel uh, when you hear these things is, uh, let's say it takes suddenly lucky turning into getting to know you. What it means is in New Haven or Boston, wherever it was, Richard Rogers went up to his hotel room to watch TV while Oscar Hammerstein had to go to work. You know, it's always easier for the composer in these situations and not the lyricist. <laughs> yeah, but also to me, you know, I don't I don't see anything wrong if if it wasn't actually used mm-hmm. in anything. But when it was when it was used and recorded, uh, I, I think that's a little odd. <laughs> yeah. All right. Something to ponder on the uh, rest of this Sunday. So uh, before we sign off, Peter, Paul Witte says to check your email. Maybe you got an answer already. Oh, oh, (laughs) my, my. (laughs) So on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Positively. You, you can make my life sublime. What's the good of wasting time in the way we do? of happiness and the constitution says i've a right to be in pursuit of happiness and the constitution says that i've got a right to be he's got a right to be still i'm in pursuit of happiness love and liberty That's the very reason why I'm in love with you. Search everywhere, look around, do you find it? Search everywhere, look around, do you find it? I'm in pursuit of happiness. I'm in pursuit of happiness. Where can you be? I've got it! I've got it!